Welcome to this discussion. My name is Marie-Therese Schultes and I am going to talk to Karen Blasi about her lessons learned related to coaching and implementation projects. Karen is one of the founders of the National Implementation Research Network and has experience with coaching in a wide range of practice settings. So Karen, thank you for being here. What are some of the challenges you experienced as you used coaching to build staff confidence and competence? Well, Marie Trace, we know that acquiring new skills absolutely requires training. However, we also know that training, while necessary, is not sufficient for staff to implement interventions with fidelity. What is required is coaching to help people become confident and competent. And this is particularly true when the staff person is the intervention. By that, I mean that the intervention or practices come to life because of what the staff person says and does. The intervention is based on interactions. For example, health professionals, educators, early intervention staff, juvenile justice staff, and therapists all provide interaction-based interventions. Such interaction-based interventions rely on the skills acquired by staff, but they also rely heavily on the judgment of staff to use those skills at appropriate times and places and in a personalized manner that benefits the client. So let's talk a little bit about what I've learned about coaching in such dynamic, interaction-oriented environments. And then we'll talk about how we improved our coaching based on what we learned. I do think that we often learn best from our mistakes, and I know I have. Early in my career, I was the director of training for a treatment program provided in group homes that served teenagers who were referred from the juvenile services division. Obviously, staff interactions with these teens in the group homes were at the heart of the treatment model. Since the group homes were scattered across a number of geographic locations, we relied heavily on scheduled telephone calls to provide coaching and support to staff. That meant that staff were providing us with self-reports about their own behavior and about the behavior of the youth or their interactions with the youth's family. We found that relying heavily on self-reports presented us with two key challenges. First, we learned that people are not very good at observing and describing their own behavior. Often we could get great and, and sometimes very vivid descriptions of the behaviors of the teenagers in their care. But when we ask the staff to tell us what they did and said before, during, and after a particular situation, uh, the information they provided was not very specific or they were actually really uncertain. Second, when staff could describe what they did, they were not very good at describing what they forgot to do or what they omitted. This makes sense, right? When you're interacting with someone, it's challenging enough to recount what you said and did and what the other person said and did including what you might have done or what you forgot to do, is asking a lot, especially for staff who are just learning a new program or a new set of practices. This meant that we were not as successful as we should have been in coaching for solutions to problems 
as well as in designing prevention strategies to avoid similar challenges in the future. That is very interesting. So, um, Karen, what did you actually do to address these challenges related to relying on self-reports? The most obvious thing we did, Marie Trace, was to schedule regular observation visits to each group home. Seeing in person how relationships were developing and how, and indeed if, the staff were implementing the treatment model were really critical to our ability to be helpful to them and to support their professional development. Now, this change may sound simple, but we quickly learned that even a simple change like this required thoughtful implementation. We needed to create trust in the process and buy-in from the staff by establishing a shared set of expectations for these visits. People needed to understand their roles, responsibilities, and the benefits of the coaching partnership. One example of a shared expectation in our work meant understanding the purpose of the home visits and asking the staff to interact as they typically would with the youth. There were certain conditions that facilitated useful coaching. For example, we wanted to be sure the family was together at the time we were visiting. We weren't excited about driving 100 miles only to learn that everyone was at the swimming pool. Nor did we want staff and the kids to put on a show for us with rehearsed interactions. In short, we wanted to see and hear the real life and moment-to-moment -moment interactions so that our feedback was relevant and helpful. These observation visits helped us, one, focus on the positive gains staff had made. It helped us prioritize our feedback and it set the stage for the next visit. We could help staff improve their skills and their judgment. As a result, staff felt more supported and competent. The second thing we did was improve everyone's basic communication skills so that when we did need to coach and support staff by phone, our coaching and consultation were likely to be more helpful. This makes a lot of sense, Karen. So uh, what kinds of basic communication skills did everyone learn? And why were those skills so important? Well, we focused on two types of communication skills. Let's call them first-hand observation skills and second-hand observation skills. First-hand observation skills refer to skills needed to accurately describe interactions to someone else. We made sure that both the coaches and the staff knew how to carefully observe and clearly describe behavior, the setting conditions, and the results or consequences related to the interactions, instead of just making general statements or using judgmental terms. For example, um, we help people move from making comments like, she was so angry and disrespectful this afternoon to something more like, she seemed angry when she came home from school because when she got home, she did not say hello to me. Then she immediately stomped up the stairs and slammed the door to her bedroom. When I went upstairs, I knocked on the door and asked her what was wrong, and she yelled and said, you don't care about me. When we did not have such clear descriptions of interactions, we found ourselves sometimes trying to solve the wrong problem or we were providing advice that was not on target. And that meant that sometimes staff felt that we were not listening to them. 
when staff were able to provide descriptions that were, were more complete and specific, we had a much clearer picture of what had happened. This meant that we were better at engaging the staff in problem solving to address the current issues and in coming up with prevention strategies for the future. As we all got better at first-hand observation skills, there was still a need to either have staff elaborate on the descriptions they provided, or we sometimes needed to rely solely on their self-reports. And staff needed and wanted this kind of timely, quick access by phone to solve problems or celebrate success. This meant that everyone needed to learn how to engage in what we called second-hand observation skills. Second-hand observation skills are used to improve our ability to get clearer about events and interactions that are being reported, but that we didn't observe. The onus is on the listener, in this case the coaches, to use these skills to get a more specific picture of what happened. In brief, these second-hand observation skills involve learning to ask a series of questions to help the person who is recounting the interaction to be more specific. This also includes frequently summarizing what we heard to be sure we were getting it right. Staff and coaches learn to ask who, what, when, where, why, and how questions, and to do this in a conversational way. For example, questions like, where were you when this happened? Or, well, after he yelled that you were not fair, do you recall what you said to him? These kinds of questions really helped create a foundation for the problem solving and feedback that could be more tailored and useful. And the staff said that these secondhand observation skills were useful to them when they had team meetings and when they were listening to teachers, family members, or others in the community. In summary, we improved our coaching and support in two ways. First, we relied less on self-reports, and we spent more time observing the use of the intervention in the actual service setting. Second, we improved everyone's communication skills that were needed to describe events and interactions, and that were needed to listen and ask questions to clarify what happened. These two changes helped us get a clearer picture of the intervention in action and it helped improve our mutual understanding of what was happening when we could not be there to observe events and interactions. As coaches, this meant we were able to be more supportive and more helpful, and staff learned to communicate more effectively with us and with others in the community. I'd like to take a minute to talk about a few coaching implementation takeaways from this discussion that will apply to most coaching systems regardless of the domain. First, effective coaching absolutely requires watching and listening to practitioners as they use an intervention or engage in new practices in a typical service setting. Today I talked about in-person observations as one method, but we also know that coaching can be effective based on video and audio. The coaching function is providing feedback based on direct observation of the practitioner. The form of direct observation might be in-person observation, as I've talked about today, or it might be via audio or video. 
The second implementation takeaway is ensuring that you engage in a buy-in process with everyone participating in the coaching partnership. Be sure everyone knows what to expect, what their roles and responsibilities are, and the benefits that we expect. And finally, staff and coaches often need specific skills to fully and effectively participate in a coaching relationship. And these skills may need to be directly taught and supported. Today I talked about skills related to improving descriptions of interactions through first and second-hand observation skills. But in other cases, necessary skills might involve learning to use data for problem solving or learning to give and accept feedback professionally. The point is that purposeful preparation for the coaching experience increases the quality and satisfaction of the experience. I hope this overview was helpful and that it got you thinking about coaching relationships, setting conditions, and skills. Thanks for having me, Marie-Therese. Thank you so much, Karen. 